We're continuing now our series in the book of Romans. So the Romans series and the title of this morning's message is Hope in God. Hope in God. And our text is Romans chapter 8 verses 31 to 39. This passage this morning is about hope. It is actually the concluding bookend to a long section in Scripture about hope here in the book of Romans. It began, the section on hope began in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, and it ends here in Romans chapter 8 verse 39. It's this whole big section has been on hope, our gospel hope. Now according to the Noah Webster Dictionary, the 1828 edition, The definition of hope includes the following. It's up on the screen. The desire of some good accompanied with expectation of obtaining it. Hope always gives pleasure or joy. By the way, that's a wonderful addition of the Bible to get. You know, he was the dictionary to get. He was a strong Christian. He spoke a lot. Many of his definitions have scripture in them. Uh, Get it. It, it's, It's helpful. It's a big old green volume about that big. Uh, so if the presence of hope, according to this definition, brings pleasure or joy, then its absence can bring pain and sadness. Or as we know from Scripture, from Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, hope deferred, Proverbs thirteen twelve on the screen, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. How's your heart this morning? Is it a little bit sick? Have you lost some hope? Maybe you got just like flu symptoms. Like this week I've had these just minor flu symptoms. You know, a little scratchy throat. I've been sneezing yesterday. I was, had to blow my nose a lot. Or, or is your heart like really, really sick? Like it's been a while since you've had hope. I mean, hope's been deferred in a certain area of your life for quite a long time. And that flu has become now pneumonia. You've got fluid in your lungs. Well, this morning, this text is about hope. Hope in God, health-producing hope. Hope in God that gives your heart a healthy nature. And I want us to, to ask God, afresh and anew, to give us that hope. I'm about to read a section of Scripture, the section of Scripture that speaks about this hope uh, in God. But I want to pray again, just briefly, so that God would open our eyes. He would gather our attention. He would settle our hearts. He would settle our minds. He would get us to the place where we're listening to his word and receiving hope. Let's pray. Father, I pray again. Hear my prayer in Jesus' name. Open our eyes up to hope, true hope, hope that delivers, hope that sustains, hope in you, God. Hope that would make hearts that are sick, maybe just a little sick right now. They have the flu. They're not feeling well. They're going to stay home from work today. They need to drink some some chicken noodle soup and rest. Get back on their feet spiritually. Or for those that are in ICU, they're really sick. We lose hope, oh God. Our hearts get sick. I ask that you heal us. Jesus came to heal our infirmities. To give us hope. Give us hope now. 
as we understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, friends, verse 31. Grab your Bibles, open them. If you don't have a Bible, get one in the back. It won't bother me. Go ahead and get it right now. I want you to read with me because you must hear this word and you must see this word and then God must open this word to your heart by the Holy Spirit. It's the most important moment of your week. Hearing God's word with God's people under God's spirit anointing us all. Romans 8.31. You there? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. According to verse 31, our hope is found in the fact that God is for us. And if God is for us, Who can be against us? The answer is no one. No one can be against us and prevail against us if God is for us. If God is for you, then it does not matter who is against you. They will not prevail. Here's the illustration. If you or I were on the schoolyard playground at recess, okay, transport yourself back to recess, and the school bully came up to mess with us, We would be in big trouble if he was very large, very tough, and we were all alone. Here's what the text says. We are not alone. Because we have an elder brother, Jesus, who's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And our big brother, who is the strongest, the most powerful person in that whole school, walks up to us as we're looking at the bully. And he puts his hand on our shoulder and he says, I'm with you. I'm with you. We're going to tussle. God doesn't say that we're not going to have problems, but they won't prevail. And the tussle will actually create in you an eternal weight of glory. We just sang about that. So right now, I hope you feel Jesus' hand on your shoulder by the Holy Spirit of God. You are not alone. God is with us. Christ, our elder brother, is with us by the Spirit. Our hope is that God, who is with us, the ruler of the entire universe, is for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Oh, they can come against us, but they will not prevail. Our hope 
is unassailable because it's in God, the one who created all. Our hope is rock solid because God is rock solid. Our hope sustains us through thick and thin, good times and bad, ups and downs, through times of sorrow and times of joy, times of clarity and times of wondering, God, what are you doing? We preached that last week. Are you doing anything? But I hope in you. Do you have this hope? It's found in one place and one place alone. Look at verse 32 to find out where our hope is found. Verse 32, please. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here is how we know that God is with us. If our hope is based on the fact that God is with us, and if God is with us, then no one can be against us, then then what's the assurance that God is with us? Show me, God, that you're with me. It doesn't feel like you're with me. Here is God saying, this is proof that I am with you. Verse 32, I did not spare my own son. But I gave him up for us all. There Paul, speaking to his first century audience, is composed of Gentiles who formerly were not God's people and Jews, now both God's people in Christ. He says, he gave his son up not just for the Jews, they had that hope in Messiah, but for you as well, Gentiles, for us all, all kinds of people. Dominicans, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, English-speaking, Spanish-speaking, Tagalog-speaking, Portuguese-speaking, us all. And our hope is found in Christ Jesus, God's Son, whom God did not spare. Oh, friends, this word, see these words, look at verse 32 again. He did not spare his own Son, Point us back to another father in the Old Testament who did not spare his son, did not withhold his son. Let's go back there. Genesis 22, 16 on the screen. God is speaking to Abraham. And he says this to Abraham. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you, Abraham, have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, but withheld your son and did not spare your son in Romans 8. Uh, 31, Paul knew what he was writing. They're they're, they're to point to each other. Paul wanted them to think about this other father, Abraham, not withholding his son. Well, what do you mean, Al? He didn't withhold his son. Well, if you read the narrative in Genesis 22, you will find out that God commanded Abraham, his covenant son, to offer up Isaac, Abraham's son, the son of promise, the son that Abraham waited until he was 100 years old to finally have. Through this son, through Isaac, would Abraham now have all children that would be like sand on the seashore, the son of promise, and God said, offer him up as a sacrifice. Go to Mount Moriah, and on that mount, I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham obeyed God. God did say he would provide a ram. But Abraham obeyed God, and as Isaac is on that altar, maybe an 18-year-old boy, and Abraham maybe is 120 years old, he's a feeble old man, but Isaac is saying, Father, I trust you, and he willingly climbs up there, and Abraham says, Father, I trust you, and he's just about to offer the sacrifice, and God says, Stop. Stop. And then he commends Abraham for his faith, and we are children of Abraham if we are children of faith. Genesis 22, 12 to 13. 
He, God, said, do not lay your hand on the boy, Isaac, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your own son. There it is again. God did not spare his own son. Abraham did not withhold his own son. Your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God provided Abraham a sacrifice so that Abraham would not have to sacrifice his son. And that ram in Genesis 22 pointed to God's son, Jesus Christ, whom God put forth, as we read here, as a sacrifice, not only for Abraham, but for all of us who put our faith in Christ, who died on the cross so that we might live, even as that ram died that morning so that Isaac might live. God offered up his son for us, verse 32. That is how we know that he is for us. The prophet Isaiah described God offering up his son for our sins as follows. Isaiah 53.10 on the screen. Yet it was the will of the Lord. See, it was God's will to crush him, Jesus. He has put him, Jesus, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, our guilt, he shall see his offspring. We are his offspring. He's the firstborn among the dead, among many brothers. Preached that last week. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Who offered up Christ on the cross? The Father. He did not spare his own son as Octavius Winslow said, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. You want to know the place where you find hope? You find hope at the cross. Because at the cross, God says, I am for you in Christ because I didn't spare him, but delivered him up for you. Dear unbelieving friend, I plead with you this morning that you would come to the cross of Christ. This is the only place that you will find hope. The place where God sacrificed his son for those who would repent and believe in him and respond to his call. And I, I, I ask you to do that this morning. Thank you for coming. I want you to leave with hope, and this is how hope arrives. This is how God is for us. It's in Christ. And dear believer, since God did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, then will God not also with him, that is his son, graciously give you all things? Yes, he will. All things for your ultimate good, which is your salvation, conformity to Christ, sharing in Christ's glory. Here is the hope that never fails you, friend. God is for us in Christ. And that's the main point of our text. That is the wellspring of our hope in God. It is found in this one truth alone, this one simple sentence that God is for us in Christ. Are you in Christ? If you are, then God is for you. If you're not, God's against you. Your greatest enemy is God. He's the greatest enemy anybody can have. But he offers peace terms unilaterally. Didn't have to make peace with you. He's much stronger than you. He offered his son. That's your greatest need. 
The rest of this passage now describes what it means for God to be it with us or for us in Christ. So point one, God is for us in Christ. Therefore, no charge, no charge against us can stand. Look at Romans 8.33 again, please. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now the first word that jumps out at me in that verse is the word elect. Elect. And it takes us back to last week's sermon from Romans 8, 28 to 30. And remember the chain of salvation from last week? The chain of salvation? Well, God's elect are those who are described there in the chain of salvation. Remember that chain does not have human fingerprints on it. It is all of God. God is the subject of every one of those verbs. He's the one doing the action, not us. And what did he do? Well, just remember, God foreknew his elect. God predestined his elect to be conformed to the image of his son. God called his elect. He may be calling some of you right now. If you do not know him, he's calling you. Answer the phone. He justified his elect, made them right in Christ, and he glorified his elect. See, we see it at the end of verse 33. Look at it. That it is God who justifies his elect. So who is it that brings any charge against them? The answer is no one. See, see, the picture, the scene depicted in this text that Paul is wanting to give is a legal scene. It's a forensic scene. It's a courtroom scene. Imagine you're in that courtroom. The judge is God himself, and the charges against you and me are of the most serious kind. Cosmic treason against the sovereign God. We are literally on trial for our lives. But then the judge does something amazing. He stands and takes off his robe and comes down to become our advocate kind of nice huh who's your attorney the judge hmm christ jesus god in the flesh who now represents us and justifies us god remember what we read this is what the book of romans is about it's about god the righteousness of god the righteousness of christ which is a foreign righteousness which becomes our righteousness and remember romans three twenty six. god is just he's a just judge and the justifier of those who place their faith in christ Let me ask you then, who is there to bring a charge against us if the judge himself is the one who justifies us? The answer is no one. And then in verse 34, God is going to detail exactly how he justified us. Look there, verse 34. Who is to condemn, so we're still in the courtroom, legal term. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. See, what this is saying is, who's going to condemn us on that final day of judgment, in that final big courtroom in the air, so to speak? No one. But it's not just for that final day that no one is going to condemn us, that no charge will stand against us. It's today that no one can condemn us and no charge will stand against us. Now, of course, there's going to be a ton of people lining up to bring charges against us and condemn us, of course. Remember, we're on that schoolyard and we're fighting the bully. Jesus didn't say, hey, don't touch him. (laughs) Sometimes we wish he would have. Hey, come on, big brother, man. Can you just like take care of him? I know you can and he can. He says, no, no, I want you to, this is good for you. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes, get get in the game, get in the fight. This is part of my will for you to grow you, to make you who you already are in Christ. But I'll always be with you. My hands can be right here. Nothing can happen to you that I don't allow. 
and they will not prevail against you. You may feel like they're prevailing against you, but get up off the ground and keep going. Because no one can condemn you, though they line up to condemn you. Who's lining up to condemn you? Well, the devil. The devil, he's the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. That's what his name means. He's the accuser of us, the world. Others will bring biting criticism that will morph into condemnation. And even our own hearts will try to condemn us, but they all fail, for it is God who justifies us in Christ Jesus. And in verse 34, he details how he justifies us in Christ Jesus. He's just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. It's not just a justification. It's like he waves the wand and poof, you're justified. No, he paid the ultimate price. He did not spare his son. Look at the verse with me. Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus who died. Remember what we read early in Romans 8? That God himself is the one who condemns sin in the death of Jesus. Romans 8, 3, if you look at it in your Bible, just previous in this chapter. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus was born a man, though without sin. And for sin, he, God, condemned sin in the flesh, in Jesus' body, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's justification. Unbeliever, this is what God is speaking to you this morning. This is what you must repent and believe. Christian, this is what we must repent and believe when we try to justify ourselves before God or others. Self-righteousness is a scourge. Not only did Jesus die, but he was raised. You see that in verse 34? The father raised the son, thus signaling his acceptance of the son's sacrifice on our behalf. When Jesus rose from the dead, there was this cosmic stamp that said, paid in full. Payment accepted. Stop trying to pay and atone for your sins. Jesus has atoned for them. And the father has received his sacrifice, and the proof is the resurrection from the dead not only that he's at the right hand of god in verse 34 jesus ascended into heaven he went in back into glory gave up that glory to die on this cross for us and then ascended through suffering came back into glory that's how we're going to go into glory as well and now he's at the right hand of the father he's resting from his finished work on our behalf he's exercising his authority to save oh he is lord And he's waiting for his final triumph. And not only that, but there in the heavenlies, Jesus is interceding for us at the very end of verse 34. Jesus, our big brother, is now our heavenly advocate, our great high priest, securing for us the benefits of his death and his resurrection. Doug Moo's quote from last week is so helpful. There is one in heaven the Son of God who intercedes on our behalf, defending us from all charges that might be brought against us, guaranteeing salvation on the day of judgment. He guarantees salvation on the day of judgment, and we get to experience that salvation today. Not fully, not fully consummated. My body is still broken down. It will die one day. But my soul is alive. And I have the promise of resurrection. I still fight sin. I'm still in the schoolyard. We're still duking it out with the bully. Sometimes the bully is even on my own self. You know, people walk out on the school ground and say, hey, why is Al punching his own face? Well, because he's, you know, you know, just like poking my eye with sin. And, you know, the enemy within, right? The flesh. I'm doing what I don't want to do. That whole thing. 
But one day, all those enemies will be defeated. The Bible says the last enemy is death itself, and Christ comes back, and there's a new heavens and a new earth, and I rule, and we rule and reign with him. Here's two applications for you. Number one, when others speak against us, when they charge us, when they condemn us, or when our own heart condemns us, we can stand on God's justification of us in Christ because we are in Christ who intercedes for us. The case against us won't stand. I beg you to run to Christ. For there is no condemnation. We read that at the beginning of chapter 8. For those who are in Christ Jesus. I've experienced the season of condemnation, church, recently. I've been looking in the mirror a lot. There have been some painful self-examinations. There's been some regret. There's been other voices as well adding to them. Man, I, I come back from the schoolyard, man. I, I got a nice black eye. Uh, sometimes self-inflicted. I just buy into the condemnation. Yeah, yeah. But you know what's helped me is this truth. What's helped me is this hymn before the throne of God. And it's helped me to so when I sing it loudly, and I sing it off key because I do in the mornings, but I'll tell you what, the truth of it is right on key with the gospel hope. And here it is. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, Jesus, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. We sang about that earlier. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You're right, Satan. I'm a loser. But I'm hidden in Christ. So take it up with him. My attorney is the judge. Case closed. Case closed. Here's another application for me. This one has been particularly cogent for me. You know, I just felt like the Lord just bringing to my mind these thoughts. You know, Al, since God has vindicated you before his throne, you really don't need to vindicate yourself before others. Oh my, oh my, I'm the chief vindicator of myself at times. It's called self-righteousness and it stinks. Well, Schreiner helps us now bridge the gap between verses 34 and, uh, 33 to 34 and verses 35 and 39 with this quote. Schreiner is a theologian and this is his commentary on those verses. God being for believers means that no legal charge will be leveled against them on the eschatological day. Eschaton just means end. Ology means study of. So the eschatological day or eschatology. On that final day of judgment, those charges leveled against us don't count today and they won't count on that day. Now, that's what we've just studied. Now, point two, in verses 35 to 39, Paul asks a relational question. Look at it there at the, at the, on verse 35. Look at the relational question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything separate them from the love of Christ? Point two, nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can separate us from God's love. In verses 35 to 39, we move from the courtroom into the living room. God sets his affections on us. 
whom he foreknew. Remember last week, that word foreknew doesn't just mean he knew something about us, but he actually set his affections on us. He said, I love you before the foundation of the world. I chose you. My affections are on you. I'm passionate about you. He declared his covenantal love for us in Christ. So so the question that Paul asks here is this, who can separate us from this love of Christ? He then offers a list of candidates that just like before, line up to try to separate us from God's love in Christ. The first three are clumped together. Tribulation, distress, persecution. These three speak of the pressures and distresses caused by an ungodly and a hostile world. Then, famine or nakedness. And I felt as I studied this point that this is for some of you in particular. You know, sometimes a lack of food or a lack of clothing could tempt me to wonder, God, you don't love me. If you loved me, I wouldn't be in want right now financially. I wouldn't be underemployed. I wouldn't be in debt. I wouldn't be losing my house. Lord, I need food. I need clothing. That represents all the things we need physically. And I, and I just... I sense from the Lord that for some of you, he just wants you to hear this. God knows you need them. And my mind went back to Jesus' words in Luke 12. I believe we have them on the screen. I'm going to take uh, some sections from what Jesus said here. Luke 12, 22, and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or, nor your, about your body, what you will put on. So famine, nakedness here. Your life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Jumping down to verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive today, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Verse 31, instead seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. God, who did not spare his own Son, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? He will. I know you're tempted to think, I feel separated from God's love because of this financial need. But you're not. You're not. Next, danger or sword. They, they tempt us to be separated from the love of Christ. So they want to separate us from the love of Christ. The risk and experience of death. That's why he quotes Psalm 44, 22. There, if you look in your Bibles, that's a little bit uh, different there. And it's a font. For your sake, we're being killed all of the day long. See, friends, here's what what Paul is saying, what God is saying to us. We're not exempt from these things. And all of these can tempt us to feel separated from Christ's love. When we get really sick, when a loved one dies, when we don't have enough to feed our families, enough money in the bank, we're going bankrupt, we're underemployed, we're really trying hard, and we just flat out fail. It didn't work out. It was a bridge too far. At that moment, I could feel so separated from God's love. But it's those very things that prove God's love. Look at verse 37. Verse 37. Oh my, what a verse. No, 
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What? Yes. According to Scripture, in these things, they don't separate us from the love of God in Christ. They actually cause us to be more than conquerors. See, these afflictions mean that we're united with Christ. Jesus said we would suffer. Paul said that we enter glory through suffering. See, these afflictions become the means by which we conquer, by which we receive ultimately the glory of Christ promised us in the last day. Not through our power, but through Christ's love. That's what it says in verse 37. Our sufferings bear witness of our union with Christ. He proved his love for us through what he suffered on the cross, and now he bids us to suffer with him. That we might be glorified with him. Verse 38 is the focal point of this argument that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He starts listing things in verse 38. Look at them. Not death nor life. The crisis of death and the calamities of life cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. Not angels nor rulers. No cosmic forces, good or bad, can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Remember, Christ rules over them all. Not the present nor the future. As I'm getting older, that's becoming more real to me. Time itself cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Time can separate me from the love of my father. It's been 20 years since he died, and I miss him. Time cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. He's timeless. Not powers, not height, not depth, nothing in space, nothing, nothing, nothing. Distance cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. And then he sums it up in verse 39b. Listen, look at it. Nor anything else in all creation. That about covers it, folks. Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you see that? Our Lord. Do you see that? We can't be separated from his love because he's Lord of all. He's the big brother with the arm, with his hand on our shoulder. And when we're getting the worst of it on the schoolyard with the bully, in his timing, in his day, when he wants to, he will say, that's it. And it's done. Now that day is the day of his return. But he's always there. I love what Ephesians 1.21 says. Speaking of Christ. Jesus, who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Ephesians 1.21. Do we have Ephesians 1.21? I'll just read it. Far above all rule, authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That passage, that passage gives me hope because the one who says you will never be separated from my love is the one who is over all. This love of God in Christ displayed on the cross was poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and God will then bring us safely home. Our trust is in God. Love what John Stott says in his commentary. Our confidence, next quote, our confidence is not in our love for him, which is frail, fickle, and faltering, but in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. Our confidence is not in our love for him. It's not in your love for him. Which is frail, fickle, and faltering. Oh, yes. Describes my weeks often. 
But in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. This is why we believe in the perseverance of the saints. We're going to make it. What he began, he's going to complete. Here's my appeal to you, church. God is for us in Christ. In Christ, we are accepted. We are justified. We are loved by God. And that love triumphs everything and everyone arrayed against us. Christ is the Lord of lords. Christ is the King of kings. And nothing in all creation can separate us from his love. I was thinking about this passage in Luke 12. And, and, and right after that section that I read, Luke 12, 22 to 31, right after he says, seek first the kingdom of God and trust God, I know you need all these things, Jesus says this in Luke 12, 32. Luke 12, 32. He says, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love it. I mean, this is us, right? Fear not, little flock. <laughs> That's us. Oh, this bully is big. Fear not, little flock. For it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Worship team, would you please join me up front. Lord, I pray that you would cause this little flock, beginning with me, one of the under-shepherds, that you have given the privilege to help oversee it. You are the good shepherd, the great shepherd. Lord, would you give this little flock now courage? Lord, if there are those here amongst us this morning who would say, I, I, I have so many charges against me. My own soul condemns me. Others are condemning me. I, I'm consumed with, with just condemnation. Father, would you show them, if they indeed are in Christ, that you, you have justified them, that Jesus died for them, that he rose from the dead for them, that he ascended into heaven and he's interceding for them right now at your right hand. Lord, for those that would say, I feel so distant from God. God's love? I don't feel God's love. I feel the alienation from dear friends that are gone. I feel emotional and relational strife. I feel the hurt and the wounds of a body that's not functioning properly. Where is God's love? May they hear you say, look to the cross. May they hear you say, I did not spare my own son, but I delivered him up for you. And will I not then graciously give you all things that you need for godliness and righteousness? And my purpose is to be done in your life. Lord, we need to experience this this morning, not just know it. So I pray, even as we sing, Lord, that, that many of us would say, Lord, if the end of my story <coughs> is sure, then, then that means that I cannot lose my way in between now and then because you will always be there. Though I do go astray, your hand is on my shoulder, your spirit's in my heart, and ultimately one day you will lead me home. So do lead us home. And let us banish any fear and unbelief. Let us stand now and sing. Now why this fear and unbelief? <laughs>